When you talk about the police officer budget, let us also talk about the $34 million plus that have been spent in police misconduct settlements. Settlement money comes out of taxpayer dollars as well. So from 1958 to 2018, it was $34 million. And I say and counting because I'm certain that the family of Joel Acevedo will probably sue the city of Milwaukee and have to go through the process of some settlement. Three hundred miles northwest of Milwaukee, in the city that sparked a movement and conversation around policing following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, the Minneapolis City Council voted on June 26 to begin the process of dismantling their police system. The council proposed an amendment to the city charter that removes the police and replaces it with new institutions like the Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention and a division of law enforcement services composed of licensed peace officers instead of police officers. Here in Milwaukee, calls perhaps not as radical to reform the police have been reinforced by 34 days of consecutive protests as of July 1st. But what will reform look like here in Milwaukee? Today on Bridges City, we speak with a community leader, a member of the Common Council, and a state representative to get a sense of what form changes might take here in the city and Wisconsin. And so that means that this episode is jam-packed with a ton of essential information that is mandatory for anyone who is interested in police reform or learning more about it. That includes talking about the history of policing and its legacy in slave patrols, the current discussion here in Milwaukee around uh, defunding the police and cutting the police budget, which is really a discussion that's happening uh, nationally right now. And then a topic that I think is often overlooked in these conversations, which is the role of the state government in all of this. You're listening to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, whose mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. Stay tuned at the end for all of our guest action steps. I'm Benjamin Rangel. So the details regarding police reform here in the city of Milwaukee are at some times controversial, but at all times complex. So to begin, we speak with Reggie Jackson, who is the co-owner of Nurturing Diversity Partners and the head griot of America's Black Holocaust Museum, to learn a little bit more about the history of policing here in the city and our country. But just a heads up, because of COVID, we had to conduct this interview over the phone, so the audio quality isn't that good, but I promise you, the content is amazing. Yes, as you said, you have to go back to the, the roots of policing in this country started uh, back many, many years ago as slave patrols. And these were groups of white men that were required by their local government to patrol uh, the areas where blacks were enslaved to make sure that they basically stayed in their place. Um, and what happens is those eventually developed, those slave patrols eventually developed into local police departments. And in addition to that, even after slavery ended, uh, police have been implicated for, for many, many years in uh, violence against black communities. You know, they stood by and, and allowed lynching to take place. They handed over black men and women to lynch mobs. Uh, when, when race riots happened, white police in their communities uh, in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, uh, going into black communities like Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in Rosewood, Florida, you know, ransacking uh, the black community, uh, killing people, looting their homes and businesses. Uh, the police were implicated in those as well. They stood by and watched. And, you know, as we as a community look at the history of policing here in Milwaukee, going back to the 1940s in particular, looking at the role that police have played in the black community as a, a kind of a, a force of control over the black community. Uh, there were Lots of protests against the police back in the 40s, particularly by young people in the, in the black community in Milwaukee, complaining about excessive use of force, complaining about what we would now call racial profiling. So there's a long history of, of a bad relationship between the police department here in Milwaukee and the black community. And as we hear the calls for reform, these are not new calls. These are things that, that have gone back many, many years 
I think one place that people can start in addition to looking at the history of uh, slave patrol is to go back and read the Connor Commission report from 1968. This was a commission put together by President Lyndon Johnson asking uh, this group uh, from all over the country to look at the, all of the uh, dozens of, of bountiful unrest that occurred, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. And what they, they, they uh, looked at was the root causes of those. Uh, they talked about uh, the systems were in place in our society that led to the anger that was expressed in those uh, bouts of civil unrest. And all of the things that they said back in 1968, those things still apply today. Uh, if you look also over the last 10 years, and, and these are not as easy to find as they used to be. They used to be readily available on the Department of Justice website. All of the investigations the Department of Justice has done of police departments around the country, from New York to Baltimore, Chicago, Albuquerque, Seattle, Miami, Ferguson, Milwaukee, all of these different cities that they've done investigations of, uh, they found very similar things in all of those communities. They found excessive use of force by the police. They found racial profiling by police. And so when we talk about police reform, um, whether it's defunding or or just uh, following through on some of the reforms that have been called for for the last few years. Um, why is it so important for people of Milwaukee, maybe in particular, to be aware of the history of policing? Well, you know, I, I think for the most part, people in, in, in the black community, we, we're very familiar with the history of policing because we, you know, that, that's part of our lived experience. There are things that we can tell people about our lived experience with the police that people for many years have not believed. You know, we've talked about our experiences of uh, being afraid of being pulled over by the police. we talked about the police, you know, pulling weapons on us unnecessarily. You know, I've had that happen to me on a number of occasions, uh, having police stick a gun in my face when I was no threat whatsoever. Um, so these are things that white people have not experienced for the most part. Some white people have. Obviously, some white people have had those experiences, but it's much more common for black people and Latino people to be in fear of the police when we encounter them. And these are the types of things that I think white people have ignored for far too long. Uh, we've been telling them those stories, the anecdotal stories they've heard, uh, the specifics that came out of, you know, um, lawsuits. You know, we, we spent over $30 million as a city on lawsuits filed against the Milwaukee Police Department. You know, from the Frank Jude beating uh, to the, the, the group that was doing anal cavity searches on people in public, uh, to multiple people who, who died, like Dante Hamilton, in encounter with police. These are things that the evidence is out there for people who are looking for it. And I think for the most part, white people simply have not looked for that evidence. They've turned a blind eye to it. They said that black people are just, you know, exaggerating. They said that, you know, when we see these viral videos, well, you know, there's always something that happened before the video, and we don't know what happened before the video, doubting, you know, the version. Uh, they've read police reports of incidents, and they believe it's like the gospel, when we know that police lie all the time when they write these reports to cover up their, their, their misdeeds. You look at the case of Laquan McDonald, who was shot and killed by police in Chicago, and there was a concerted effort to cover it up uh, in the highest levels of the Chicago Police Department and even some of the leadership of the city of Chicago. Uh, there was a concerted effort to lie about it, cover it up. And black people, we don't trust that you're going to be able to do the right thing because you lie so consistently. But white people believe, you know, they watch these TV shows and they think that, you know, the, the police are always the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. But listen, I, I, I'm writing an article now which talks about this, Ben. And one of the things I say in the article is this, that when it comes to white people, and I've driven out to Brown Deer where my in-laws live, and I've seen you know, their white neighbors who have these, you know, uh, we stand by the badge signs in their yards and have, you know, uh, back to blue and all of these other things. Listen, I know that those people, when they see police officers, they see them differently than we do. Because Officer Bob, is their nephew or their cousin or the softball coach for their kids or their bowling buddy, you know, their next-door neighbor, the guy that invites them over to the 4th of July for a barbecue area. That's how white people see the police. 
We don't see the police in that way. 55% of Milwaukee police officers don't even live in the city of Milwaukee anymore. So we know that our perception of the police is different than the perception of white people. And really, the perception of white people has to change. They have to begin to look at the police in the way that we do. And it may not be part of their lived experience, but believe me, they can learn a lot by just sitting down, being quiet, and listening to what black people and Latino people are saying about the police and their experience with police, and even Native Americans as well, uh, who had a great deal of issues with police uh, in the state. You know, we have the highest incarceration rate for black males of any state in the country. We have the highest incarceration rate for Native Americans uh, of any state in the country. So it's not just the black community that's impacted. We're primarily impacted, but there are other communities of color that are impacted in negative ways, and white people simply have to start to believe those things and act on those and question whether or not they should continue to support the police in the way that they always have. There were two critiques Reggie had around the current conversations related to police reform. One was that activists calling to defund or even dismantle the police department here in Milwaukee underestimate the real difficulty of reform and have no blueprint for what comes after the department is defunded or dismantled. Two, Reggie argues we should emphasize accountability over defunding or dismantling the police department. I hear the Common Council talking about defunding. I think they're kind of jumping on a national bandwagon as conversations about defunding are taking place. I don't want to hear them talking about defunding. I want to hear them talking about, are they going to force the Milwaukee Police Department to live up to the mandate by a judge in the lawsuit that the ACLD won? Are they going to demand that the police department follow through with those mandates? Are they going to look back at those recommendations made by the Department of Justice and say that these are some things that the Milwaukee Police Department needs to do? They can do all of this talk about the funding that they want, but to me those are just, just empty platitudes that mean nothing because ultimately that is not something that is going to fix the police department. I can hear activists who are calling for something more radical listen to what you just said and think, well, Reggie, you pointed out a variety of different recommendations by the Justice Department and by a, a judge, um, yet the police haven't uh, fulfilled those recommendations or they haven't um, accommodated them. And that's part of the reason why we should uh, just either defund or dismantle the institution in general, because even when uh, things are done the quote-unquote correct way, uh, the police don't follow through on those reforms. So uh, we need something different than police. You, you, you don't agree with that sentiment? Well, I, I think that what we need is we need an enforcement mechanism to make sure the police do what they're told to do. You know, we have a fire and police commission. We have all the persons who have not forced the Milwaukee Police Department to live up to those mandates by a judge. So it's not the police department. Listen, the police department will do whatever they want to do unless they're forced to do something else. So when people talk about this reform, who who is it? in our community that can force the police department to do these things if the fire and police commission, which their job is to do this, and our elected officials, the mayor, the common council can't do it, why do people automatically think now that if we do these radical reforms that the police are going to follow through because nobody is holding them accountable? Uh, you're, going to, you're going to have the same people holding them accountable that have not held them accountable. That's part of the problem is the, the accountability has to be there. You know, we know that, like you just said, Ben, that the police haven't followed through. The reason they haven't followed through is because we have not forced them to follow through. The people that are in place, the people that that are, you know, commissioned to do this, to force the police to follow through with these mandates, they're not doing their job. And that is part of the problem. It's not just the police department. It's who is overseeing the police. It's not that we have to dismantle or start all over from scratch, because that to me makes no sense whatsoever. You simply take the things that are fixable and you fix those things. And, you know, this idea that people have said about, you know, starting over from scratch, well, those people have not given you a blueprint for what that means when you're starting over from scratch, what it looks like. Uh, and I don't think that there's enough evidence out there of examples of that happening uh, to say, okay, this is something that we can follow. This is the blueprint we can follow. These are best practices from this community. Uh, I think that 
overall, as we look at this system, that policing is a huge institution. There are a lot of elements to policing. Uh, you know, we have a fine police commission. We have a police department with, with thousands of officers. We have a police union that is very, very strong. Uh, police unions around the country are some of the strongest. So there are a lot of elements to these things that make it not as easy as people think. You know, I think that people have gotten caught up uh, in, in the, you know, the emotions of the protest and the signs of the protest. And they think that because of these things, automatically we can, we can go in and make these major changes. It just doesn't work that way. I don't think it's very realistic for people to say those things because time and time again, the history teaches us that reform efforts, calls for reform, simply do not play out in the way that people want them to. And I think a big part of it goes back, once again, what I said about accountability. Who are we holding accountable for these things? We can hold the police department accountable, but ultimately we have to hold the people that are overseers of the police department. Our common council is, is the organization that gives them their money every year. You know, when we're spending half of the city's budget on the Milwaukee Police Department and no one from the common council says that's a problem, then guess what? They're part of the problem as well. Because now they're talking about defunding the police. People have been asking them to defund the police for years in Milwaukee. This isn't a new call. But now all of a sudden, because of all of the protests and, you know, the conversations about defunding police that have cropped up around the country, now all of a sudden they're jumping on that bandwagon. Interestingly enough, here in Bridges City, we actually got to speak with Alderwoman, a member of the Common Council, Shantia Lewis, who has been calling for some reforms in the police budget for some time, even before uh, the most recent protests. So let's hear what Alderwoman Shantia Lewis had to say about Reggie Jackson's criticism of the Common Council. What is your Mm -hmm. response to uh, Reggie Jackson's uh, comment on defunding really isn't the answer? We need to be more accountable and follow through on the recommendations that already exist. Um, On that, I would say I absolutely agree that we need to be holding the chief and the entire department to the ACLU's recommendations. And I think we should absolutely start having a larger conversation surrounding that um, because there are uh, a, a few things that um, the chief uh, and the, the department as a whole um, have failed to do. And so ultimately that is that rests on the FPC to, to ensure that they are adhering to. And if they're not, then there are some level of um, penalties or reform or whatever that needs to occur at that level. So we as the council can call that out and then we can bring them to the table. Um, uh, but we, as we saw with the, just with the riots and the protests, uh, the chief uh, did a phenomenal job of um, having other things to do instead of participating in the discussion uh, that the council called for. So I think that it is something that we really need to be working in tandem together on because uh, this is this is you know not a time for for stuff to skate by. This is not a time for for us to say, oh man, that didn't happen. You know, well, on to the next thing. No, we need to start holding folks' uh, feet to the fire and ensure that the work that is expected, that was fought for, and that um, essentially was solidified gets done. So I I agree that we need to um, ensure that we are holding everyone accountable. And let let me just be really clear. This fight is not the council's fight alone. This fight is not FPCs alone. This is residents, taxpayers, all of us um, working in tandem to ensure that the change that we are calling for, the change that we want to see happen, gets done. So there's, we can't do all of this on our own. We still need the community to come alongside us through this process and to push to ensure that we are seeing um, a, a historical level of change. So we wouldn't be um, seeing these things happen right now, all of this legislation that is coming out. We wouldn't see um, 
the the push for uh, focus on police reform or quality of life issues or the mere fact that people are saying Black Lives Matter a lot more or um, getting educated on Juneteenth, we would not see that without the movement that is happening right now. So it is a ripple effect. So I absolutely uh, agree to some 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 degree that we need to do a little bit more, um, but it's not just, uh, the burden is not just on us alone. So I would ask that Reggie Jackson, you come on alongside us and you get to work right along with us. There is, and, and any other community member that has a, um, uh, a thought on how this should go, I would say that you, you get, a, get, get with FPC, send a, a letter, send an email, call and express your, your views and your opinions opinions, but don't stop there. Send it to the MPA, send it to the state. Let's put the pressure to ensure that um, the, the Milwaukee that we want to live in is the Milwaukee that we are creating as a whole. In addition to Alderwoman Lewis's response to Reggie Jackson's claim that the Common Council needs to do more to hold the police accountable, one of the main reasons we wanted to speak with Alderwoman Lewis is because in the last Common Council meeting, she was uh, one of the more vocal participants related to police reform. Now, more specifically, she talked a bit about something called SOPs. This is her in that meeting. For the public consumption, the Assembly Bill 1012, um, is essentially uh, requiring law enforcement agencies to assure that its publicly available policy on the use of force incorporates the following principles. Um, the, the primary duty of all law enforcement is to preserve the life of individuals under their SOP and that deadly force um, is the last resort and should be clearly and is clearly stated. And so when we had her on Bridger City here, we wanted to ask her more about standing operating procedures to understand them in a bit more detail. SOPs, standard standard operating procedures, is their um, the rule book, essentially the manual, the police manual uh, for the rules and regulations, the policies, the procedures that they are required to by law to adhere to. So, if their SOP, their standard operating procedure, allows a certain thing then that is, is essentially absolves them from uh, any type of wrongdoing. And so the SOPs are um, crafted, managed, and um, essentially updated by the Fire and Police Commission. And so if they... Um, if there is anything that is either out of date or just not in sync with the way that the police officers uh, should be performing their duties, that is how we get it changed. One, through the Fire and Police Commission, but then two, we also have to continue to remember the, the, the police administration arm, the MPA, because they fight at the state and the local levels to ensure a certain level um, of changes or non-changes that happen to their SOPs because some of our SOPs are local that the Fire and Police Commission can change just as um, the council will change some city ordinances. But there are some that are state regulated that cannot be changed unless the state uh, deems it so. Yeah, and so this is just another example of how complicated police reform can be because there are certain procedures, institutions, systems set up at the local level through the Fire and Police Commission. But as you'll hear in a bit from a state representative, Lakeisha Myers, uh, there are also some systems operating procedures set up at the state level. And so reform hap has to happen on multiple levels of government to address police behavior commission has to uh, change because we are the council, but we do not directly uh, oversee the fire or the police commission. That is the FPC. So we can't hire fire the chief. We can't hire fire officers. We cannot give any type of disciplinary action to any officer. That is the sole discretion um, and authority of the FPC. Okay. And so, yeah, this is complicated, which is why I'm really happy that we're talking to you because if um, I'm confused, I'm sure others are as well. And so you mentioned a few things. You mentioned that there's some SOPs that are established through the uh, Fire and Police Commission. Then there are others that are established at the state level. Mm -hmm. And so 
the fire and police commission seems like we as residents of Milwaukee might have more impact or influence there. Let's just yes. start by establishing or identifying who is it that decides uh, who who's on the fire and police commission. So the mayor is the the one who submits for appointment, and then the council approves. Okay, so, so you the, will. So yes. the council has some oversight in that capacity. Um, in so the appointment capacity, yes. Yep. So you you will see the 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 last three commissioners. We rejected um, those last three commissioners because um, they just didn't seem like they would fit the bill, and that was a real big uh, media storm surrounding that. But um, one of the things that we as a either a council or as a um, residency body need to do a little bit more of is play a part in that role, whether it's submitting um, uh, names, submitting candidates or volunteering your name. If you think that you are a fair minded person who uh, is willing to take on that challenge, it is a very public body. It is a very scrutinized body. It is a very important body. So if someone would be interested, uh, then I would say submit your name to either the council or to the mayor's office. That is part of the problem. We are supposed to have nine members. We only have seven. And two of those members are expired and looking to come off of uh, the Fire and Police Commission. But we've had the darndest time trying to uh, find uh, good, fair, balanced people to, to be a part of that committee. Interesting. So uh, Bridges City, as you know, is all about action steps and getting people engaged in the community. I think Mm -hmm. uh, initially when people think about getting involved in politics, it's like, okay, well, I vote or maybe hopefully you vote at the very least. Um, But you're saying Mm -hmm. that there's even a vacuum right now in terms of people who are willing to step up and be on the commission itself, not even necessarily uh, get involved in holding the commission accountable, either through voting, yes. uh, but like literally be on the commission. So that's good for Correct. listeners to know. During our discussion, Alderwoman Lewis was quick to point out the role of the state in police reform. And that conversation turned to the fiscal constraints of the city due to shared revenue structures. So the city of Milwaukee generates over um, $5 billion in revenue. City of Milwaukee every single year and what we do is all of our money because of state you know the state share um, the control we have to then send that money to the state and that five billion dollars gets divvied up over all of the municipalities across the state and then we get uh, 1.5 billion back in shared revenue so that's what the shared revenue conversation is milwaukee is the economic driver of the entire state Following shared revenue, we turn to Act 10. Yes, that Act 10. Act 10 was an intensely controversial piece of legislation primarily affecting the following areas for public sector employees. Collective bargaining, compensation, retirement, health insurance, and sick leave. That is all public sector employees except for those related to public safety, which includes firefighters and police officers. This legislation was met with massive protests in Madison. Democratic legislators left the state at one point to avoid voting on the legislation. The state Senate Republicans then changed the rules in order to pass legislation without quorum. The state Supreme Court got involved, and eventually the governor was recalled, only to become the first governor in American history to win a recall election. But in the end, Act 10 became law here in Wisconsin. What is fascinating now is that you have some Democrats who are talking about expanding Act 10 to include police officers. Furthermore, it is interesting to think about whether a new system of public safety that might include a new type of public safety official could or should include those officials under the restrictions of Act 10. So everyone is looking at the budget, right, and how large of the budget goes to the police department. Part of that is because well, the very the, the large majority of that is because of Act 10 and the fact that we can't really negotiate their salaries. We cannot uh, negotiate their, their pensions. And they are the he- top, top heavy, um, not only just in salaries, but in pensions. And so that is something that is crippling the city. So if we look back at Act 10, every union um, essentially... Uh, was ripped of their co- collective bargaining rights, their their right to to negotiate for on behalf of their people, as well as collecting dues. 
um, which you know strengthens a union and it gives them the uh, the political capital to be able to to push for and fight for issues for their uh, for their folks. And so um, omitting the fire and the police uh, from that is is one that caused the divide but two it also left them with the ability to continue to fight as an unstructured organized union with with paying dues with with having that level of representation with having a strong backed uh union and so if they are in full capacity intact being able to go up to the state and lobby uh, being able to to lobby on the local level uh, being able to uh to really try to push for and influence their policies on behalf of their people uh, just like any other union um therein lies the the unfair and imbalanced um process because the other unions can't do so but then you have them standing on the sidelines still being able to to do the work on behalf of their people and some of it is legitimate i will not say that uh, they don't have some level of legitimacy uh, but some of it is protecting bad officers when they know they should just you know, try to negotiate, um, you know, some level of, um, of penalty instead of negotiating, keeping them on, um, which is another um, uh, SOP. If they're not, uh, they can be collecting like we see in the case of Joel. Joel Acevedo is a Milwaukeean who was killed on April 19, 2020, during an alleged dispute between an off-duty Milwaukee Police Department officer and Joel. Many of the local protests in Milwaukee have highlighted Joel's case and center calls for justice for him. The officer involved was suspended but receiving compensation. According to state statute 62.135H, no person shall be deprived of compensation while suspended pending disposition of charges. No person meaning no police officer in this case. In other words, until the investigation by the Fire and Police Commission is complete, the police officer involved in Joel's death will continue to be paid. This is at least the reasoning given by Milwaukee Police Department Chief Morales. However, Mayor Barrett cites a different statute, 62.50, that suggests the chief has the ability to terminate the police officer and urges Chief Morales to do so so that the city is no longer compensating that police officer. Chief Morales also cited a seven-day waiting period between when he could interview the officer about what happened. However, according to Standard Operating Procedure 450 on personnel investigations, the seven-day waiting period is not needed to an incident involving death or great bodily harm. Again, Chief Morales is citing a state law here, not the standard operating procedures established by the local fire and police commission. So we need to be fighting to ensure that these um, standard operating procedures are, um, that we are aware of them. You can request them. They should be on the FPC uh, website. And if not, you can email the executive director, uh, Griselda Aldretti, to receive a copy of the SOPs because those are public documents. I should say that the website provides uh, at least 116 of these individual and specific standard operating procedures that deal with everything from uh, how to handle animals in the field to officer-involved shootings. Whether or not all of the standard operating procedures are public on the website uh, is sort of unknown based on what you find on the website. However, there are many of them, and uh, some of the specific operating procedures are extremely long and at times complicated. Yeah, and a few things related to keeping police accountable. One other mechanism, it, I think you did a really good job of describing how the Fire and Police Commission is in charge of the SOPs, um, mm -hmm. but the uh, as is being discussed in the Common Council right now, the Common Council does have uh, some power and oversight mm -hmm. through just like the police budget, right? I mean, theoretically, mm -hmm. you could threaten uh, to uh, not pass a budget or not accept a mayoral budget that doesn't have a, 
a decrease in police budget. And you can kind of use that as a bargaining tool in some ways. So on the topic of reducing the budget of the Milwaukee Police Department, you have the organizations like LIT and Liberate MKE that have called for defunding the Milwaukee Police Department. LIT, Mm -hmm. uh, their specific demand that I know off the top of my head is 25%, a reduction by 25%. In the last Mm -hmm. Common Council meeting, the council passed a resolution that uh, allows for the council to research uh, at the very least, what a 10% cut in the mm-hmm. uh, police budget would look like. Where do you stand in terms of uh, defunding the police? That 10% mark sound good to you? Is it too high, too low? Um, or is something like what LIT is demanding, a 25% reduction more mm-hmm. in line with what you think is appropriate? So the the 10% reduction, I think it's more like 375 police officers, and that will be equivalent to about two police stations. So I think MPD is really good at showing where the fire is and, and always trying to throw out the worst case scenarios, right? I think that we could definitely do a reduction, which is something that I have been, I've been doing as a, um, a finance and, and uh, personnel member, the vice chair for the last four years, but now I'm no longer a member of the, um, the finance and personnel committee. But at, for the previous four years is something that I have been doing uh, to be to, to ensure that we are reducing um, the police budget responsibly without impacting um, police services to the degree, because we have to keep in mind that if we're calling nine one one, if there's a true emergency, and if we're calling nine one one, we want someone to respond, right? So we have to to do this uh, in a balanced uh, way. I wholeheartedly believe that there police budget is way too high and that we need to find ways to reduce their budget um, as well as finding ways to either expand or redo Act 10, which is something that I've been, uh, that I put in a resolution for, uh, for us to to begin those negotiations again uh, so that we can, we can get some fair and um, equitable uh, approach to that because their budget is just out of control. Um, and I've been one of one of the ones shouting from the rooftops the last four years like this is insane. And so I have been trying to find ways to carve out funding and reallocate it to the, the public health department, because that is where we need to really be focusing in on. They are just two or three percent of the budget when they should be much larger. Um, and so uh, either carving out- Alderwoman Lewis cites police cars or police horses as potential things that could be cut from the budget. But as we said in the beginning, the vast majority of the police budget is taken up by salaries, wages, and benefits. Um, and then making sure that we can cap out salaries, that we can cap out um, pensions. You should not be able to uh, retire and then get a $65,000 check issued to you. And then you get um, at like 80%, 70 or 80% of your um, pay given to you every single month. It's like, okay, you, you work for us. We absolutely appreciate your service, but we as the city should not have to be in a strained position during your retirement. So we need to rethink what this looks like. There should be some security for folks who work 30 years and, and be able to go off and retire. That's a part of the retirement plan, but the whole burden should not be on the city of Milwaukee because not other, no other um, uh, city employee gets to, to have that level of, of security. And so we need to be having those types of conversations, but I absolutely believe that um, there needs to be some reduction. So I said all of that to say that I don't think we need to jump to uh, police officers right away. I think there are other creative ways that we could look at cutting. Uh, MPD just always goes to how many sworn strength. Again, looking at the budget, it seems fiscally impossible to see a reduction of 10% or more without addressing salaries, wages, and benefits, unless some other public safety department or institution is established. But I'm also a firm believer of community policing and restructuring that and ensuring that 
um, those models that have worked across the country that we can do through the blueprint of peace and our Office of Violence Prevention um, has been trying to do, getting them fully funded and making sure that they continue the work that they can do. Um, so I think the 10% mark is a, a, it was a conversational piece to see what we can do. Um, I don't think that's the end all be all. I don't think that um, it may not even be outlandish to think that there could be a 25% cut. Um, we need to make sure that we do it responsibly so that public safety isn't hindered, but we need to make sure that um, we are, are making sure that we're getting the services from the police department that we are expecting. So they shouldn't be doing social services. Um, those calls, the social services calls, or um, any type of thing that is out of their sphere. We need to narrow down what their focus is, get some retraining, get some de-escalation training, and some, um, some, some other types of training to ensure that they are doing policing uh, the 21st century way and not the way of old. So you heard Reggie Jackson talk about the lack of accountability for police, and then uh, Alderwoman Shantia Lewis discuss things happening at the local level, but also how a lot of the reform also has to happen at the state level. So we sat down with the state representative. Lakeisha Myers, I'm the state representative for the 12th Assembly District, which encompasses the far northwest corner of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and a small portion of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. And to start a conversation, we discussed the most recent attempt to reconvene the legislature in order to address some of the calls for action that uh, protesters have had related to police reform and racial justice. On your end, at the state level, um, I saw recently that the Legislative Black Caucus sent a, a letter to Governor Evers asking him to convene the legislature to address legislation related to police reform and racial justice. And that, and that request was denied. Were you at all disappointed by the governor's response? Um, I wasn't disappointed in the governor's response. My, uh, we had had a conversation um, prior to that information being released. The Legislative Black Caucus, um, I'm actually the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus. So we came together um, to urge action on um, police and other justice reforms. Uh, we wanted the original uh, date to be called on Juneteenth. That was not done, you know. Um, willfully, I mean, you know, like uh, just willy nilly. <laughs> um, it was done on purpose because uh, Juneteenth is uh, the date uh, in 1865 that African-Americans, uh, the last of those that were enslaved uh, African-Americans were freed um, when uh, General Granger came to Galveston, Texas, to let folks know that they had been freed two and a half years earlier. Um, so I think that was done purposefully um, on our part. We understand the legislative process, and if you look at the legislative calendar, we are technically out of session. Um, we can be called back into session by either uh, leadership in the uh, leadership in both houses, which both houses are currently controlled by Republican members, um, and the governor can call a special session. That is why we appealed to not only the governor but also to uh, the Speaker of the Assembly and the President of the Senate. Um, in doing so, they have to be on the same page and willing to meet as well. Um, that has not happened. Um, there was unwillingness um, within the uh, assembly, I mean, excuse me, within the uh, Senate uh, president um, to do that. So if they can't get on the same page, um, there seemed to be amicable um, want to uh, discuss items that were laid dormant in the Senate. Um, however, you know, the Senate president wasn't interested in doing that. State Senator Scott Fitzgerald is the Senate majority leader in the state Senate. And we have uh, asked him why he did not want to convene the Senate per the Legislative Black Caucus's request, but failed to get a response in time for this episode. The governor could have called for the special session and it would have been a political football at that point, um, having um members of the Senate and the Senate and the Assembly go in and gavel in and gavel out. We've seen that happen before. And this is not a trivial um, pursuit at all. Um, this is something that's very serious. African-Americans make up 6.5% of the population in the state of Wisconsin. Um, and there are only uh, seven of us that currently serve that are African-American members. So we 
become the effective representative voice for every African-American that lives in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so we were unwilling to do that, you know, and to have it be just this show of, oh, let's gavel in and gavel out because we really don't care. No, this actually matters. And we want people to understand why this matters. Yeah. And I saw maybe in another interview that you mentioned, it could have actually been a, the, the governor's a denial of the, of the request could have actually been a blessing in disguise. And I think you cited the fact that it could uh, for, uh, provide you all with just more time to, to be intentional up around the legislation. However, uh, wouldn't it have in some ways forced the Republican legislative leadership to, you know, either act on the request to pass some legislation around police reform and racial justice or, as you said, gavel in and gavel out. But then it's the, it's very clear that it's the Republicans who have made the decision, you know, this isn't important for us right now. We're just going to show up and then leave. Um, I look at it twofold. In order to get anything done in either chamber, you have to have bipartisan support. And I think understanding where we are and with the um, legislative mechanisms that we have at our disposal as a Black caucus, we met and discussed these items. We are also not just working at our level, which is at the state level, um, because that's kind of a 30,000 foot approach. We are also working with um, legislators at the county level as well as the city level. And I do want to just pause right here because as I was reporting on this episode, it was clear that police reform in our city is complicated and requires intentionality. However, I can imagine some activists getting a little bit frustrated hearing city-level officials talking about what needs to happen at the state level and state-level officials referencing the work being done at the city and the county level. Uh, Alternatively, you can think about how this... Uh, good or bad is how the system was designed to work. Uh, the system of federalism in which uh, municipal, county, and state and federal level uh, governments are intertwined and are required to work with one another. Um, state legislation takes longer to pass. Um, however, there are more immediate actions that could be taken by uh, Milwaukee Common Council um, and at the county level, quite frankly, that we have the ability to impact faster, which would give the people who we serve ultimately um, resolve in what they want. I think when you focus on looking at policing, policing is just one aspect and one cog in 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 a wheel that has many different moving parts when it comes to achieving equity for people across this state. Policing is what is splashed on the front page now. People are now being, um, convicted and looking at, you know, their convictions of how we spend taxpayer dollars. And a lot of that happens at the municipal level. So when you look at the immediate pressure that can be put on changes that can be made to immediately impact lives, there's a greater result that can happen in a faster amount of time at the municipal level. So we're not not working at the state. We are working at every level and working with our colleagues at every level to try to institute changes that can really have a significant impact for generations to come. So by the time we get the special session or we get to um, go back into session in January of, of next year, or if we have a special session later this summer or in the fall at some point in time, I think the level of impact will have already been made. There will be ripples that have already been created by that time. So I don't think, I don't want the public to think that it's just a lost cause, um, that it's not going to happen. It was delayed. It wasn't, you know, I don't think it was denied, um, you know, just for that day. I think it was something that's delayed. Um, But you'll see changes throughout uh, the coming weeks and months. And so what's interesting um, sort of about that, um, that response is that yesterday you had the Republican uh, legislative leadership, at least in the assembly, give a pretty notable press conference. Uh, you had Speaker Robin Voss and and others within the Republican legislature sort of demanding that Governor Evers do more to address the the, the demonstrators, uh, the, the behavior of the demonstrators who assaulted uh, one of your colleagues actually in the state legislature um, and tore down two statues. So you have the Republican leadership demanding that Governor Evers does more around addressing the demonstrations, but 
it sounds like the Republican leadership uh, also wasn't willing to convene to talk about what the demonstrators are protesting about. So there's this disconnect that I'm sort of identifying there. Uh, I guess, what is your response to the Republican leadership who have demanded that Governor Evers and his administration do more uh, to address the demonstrators in in Madison and throughout the state? Well, let me first say that I... um as of yet have not seen the uh the interview the press conference that they did so i'm not i don't know exactly what was said um i have not watched it yet what i will say is that i think this is um something that i i think happens often when you talk about movements uh and when you talk about um you know how people value property um i think that's something that 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 happened even when the protests first started in the city of Milwaukee and across this state, that people were concerned that there was uh, looting and you know fires being set um, in certain parts of the city of Milwaukee, and they said, "Oh, it's just so terrible. These people are burning down or you know set a fire at X Y Z location." Um, um, but I will say this, um, and this is just a general statement that when we care more about property than we do care about people and their existence, I have a problem with that. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. Despite Governor Evers' decision to uh, not call a special session, uh, I should say Governor Evers and the leadership of the Assembly in the Senate, because uh, they also had the option to call a special session, uh, Governor Evers did offer a package of legislation to address police reform and racial inequities in the state. Does that package do enough uh, in your perspective? Oh, absolutely not. Um, it is a great beginning. Actually, uh, some of the items that were present in what the governor proposed were pieces of legislation that had been already discussed and proposed by members of the Legislative Black Caucus and other members, quite frankly. Um, we have members who've been um, serving in the legislature for the past 16 years, Senator Taylor being one of them. She has been uh, vehement about passing or introducing legislation um, that would create better equity and opportunities for people of color um, and other marginalized groups for many, many years. Um, so that is something that, that was um, of interest. I think some of the items that we had um, that, that the governor uh, had in his package uh, were from the Eight Can't Wait campaign, which is a national campaign to look at um, systemic police reforms, things like uh, ending no-knock warrants, um, making sure that uh, use of force uh, is a last resort, uh, making sure that we codify into state statute the uh, database system of, of police misconduct where a person who, let's say they engaged in police misconduct in Milwaukee, cannot then move to Bayfield and then uh, be hired by their police department without a background check and without um that particular agency knowing that this officer was engaged in misconduct. I think that's something that also is present in um, the Justice and Policing Act that was proposed by the Congressional Black Caucus at the federal level. So again, I say we're all working in tandem toward the same goals. There are things that um, already exist in the state of Wisconsin that we're looking to codify. There are things that exist um, on paper, uh, you know, in the state that we're looking to make sure are enforced. Um, there are rules that are already in place that we're trying to push to be enforced, like the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission. Senator Taylor was a champion of expanding the Fire and Police Commission to include, I believe it's nine members over a decade ago. However, the mayor of the city of Milwaukee has yet to appoint these positions and make sure that they have a full functioning uh, Fire and Police Commission. So again, these are things that we have to identify and are looking and working with different people at various levels of government to ensure that they're happening. Um, I think those are some things in the immediate that that could help. Um, another thing uh, Alderwoman Lewis mentioned was uh, the budget, because a lot of these conversations around police reform uh, include defunding the police. And so I guess let's start just there first. What is your position on defunding the police, at least here in Milwaukee? Do you think that's a good strategy? Um, yeah, what's your what's your response there? When I've talked to individuals who uh, African-American Roundtable, when you talk to uh, Comforce, 
uh, the community task force and other groups who have uh, made demands, and they talk about defunding the police. Um, they are talking specifically about uh, reinvestment. So it is not the abolition of police in their entirety. Um, so I want to be clear about that. That is what um, my understanding of the defund police movement is. And I think, um, you know, while it's a, a shocking trigger when people say defund, oh my God, what do you mean? You know, that really triggers people than saying, uh, you know, abolish the police, um, which is not what they are saying at all. Um, it's really a reinvestment protocol for police funding. So my, uh, my retort to my colleagues who talk about defunding the police, I wholeheartedly agree with defunding and with reinvesting dollars that we spend in, uh, on police, uh, on the police budget. When you look at $17 million being spent in just overtime in 2018 alone, that's a problem. $17 million could have been better reinvested by looking at the Office of Violence Prevention. They have um, the violence interrupters from the Group 414 Life, which is under the Office of Violence Prevention. When you look at uh, drug treatment programming, when you look at mental health um, uh, resources that could be delivered in the community, um, working with a lot of our school-based uh, programs that we have for after-school programs, uh, programming in the community uh, to give kids outlets like Program the Parks, um, the Village Group, different organizations like that, that are doing positive things and working on the ground with people. I think those are some positive reinvestments that could happen with just overtime alone. Let's not even get into what is happening with uh, benefits when it comes to, um, you know, waste, fraud and abuse at the police department. And a lot of people will probably get upset with me saying waste, fraud, and abuse, but it is. When you look at Sterling Brown, that was a simple ticket. If he was parked in a handicapped spot, I think it's what, a $250 ticket you can get for parking in a handicapped spot. It may be $500. Okay, give him a ticket and move on. But when eight officers respond to one man being parked illegally in a parking space and then yell money, 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 that's a problem for me and talking about all the overtime that they're getting. There is no real scrutiny of police overtime. I think that's something that, that needs to be looked at. So when you look at $17 million spent in overtime, all of the funding that's going toward, um, going toward the pension program, we can no longer sustain the pension program that we have. When you talk about the police officer budget, let us also talk about the $34 million plus that have been spent in police misconduct settlements. Settlement money comes out of taxpayer dollars as well. So from 1958 to 2018, it was $34 million. And I say and counting because I'm certain that the family of Joel Acevedo will probably sue the city of Milwaukee and have to go through the process of some settlement. I'm sure that, uh, you know, others that have had issues with the police uh, with, with police will have to pay out uh, some of these settlements. When you look at some of the, it took from 1958 when Daniel Bell was killed, um, his family did not get a settlement until 1981. So if you think about inflation and over time, what that was, that's a problem. It should not take that long for them to settle these cases. And the cases shouldn't have been settled in the first place. I am a proponent of not utilizing um, you know, tax dollars to do this, but get the officers to pay for it. I bet you, you would see a reduction in uh, misconduct if officers had to be responsible or have some type of liability insurance or malpractice insurance similar to doctors. So that's something else that we are really looking at. Uh, it was a $1.8 million settlement um, that Daniel Bell's family received, and that was in 1981. You have Clifford McKissick in 1967. We don't know how much his family received. Ernest Lacey, uh, you know, had his incident in 1981. That was a $600,000 payout. Then you have uh, Curtis Harris, who was bat uh, battered uh, by the police in 1983, a $3 million settlement. All of these things, you know, so when you look at the fact that there are several lawsuits that are still pending, Derek Williams from 2011, still pending. He was the first guy who said, I cannot breathe in the back of the squad car and he died. 
When you look at Seville Smith, that's a lawsuit that's still pending. Jerry Smith Jr. still pending. Um, you know, Rafael uh, Rosales still pending. The stop and frisk, uh, you know, plaintiffs, that was a class action lawsuit of 74 people. And that was a $6 million payout. Sterling Brown's case is still pending because they offered him, what, $400,000, which, you know, was just a slap in the face to me. Um, but I think when you look at the fact that we've had all of these police settlements for misconduct, it's time out for that because that is protecting people who are doing the wrong thing. So we've been able to listen to some of the context around police reform and things that are happening at the city, state level, recommendations by Reggie Jackson. Uh, but what can you do? How can you get involved? Well, this is Bridger City, so we're all about action. So listen to our guests' action steps now. I think the, the, the primary thing that, that listeners should do, people who are members of the community in Milwaukee, is they need to call upon the mayor and the common council and the fire police commission to do their job overseeing the Milwaukee Police Department. They need to call and email and text and ask them, why are you not demanding that the Milwaukee Police Department follow through on the mandate uh, that they just put in place after the ACLU power lawsuit? Why are you not demanding that they do those things? And if you haven't been doing that, when do you plan to start? Because ultimately, uh, until that type of political pressure is placed on our elected officials, the police department is not going to change by itself. It has to come from an outside force. The fire police commission is in place to do that. Uh, the common council and the mayor, you know, dictate the funding for the police department. They have a great deal of control over what police do in this city. They're just simply sitting down and not living up to what we elected them to do. That's part of their responsibility as elected officials. That's part of their responsibility as members of the fire police commission to do their job, and we have not pressured them to do their job. So I would advise all of your listeners to begin to put that pressure on those those two parties, the Common Council, the Mayor, Fire Police Commission, make them do their job and, and ensure that you follow through make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do under the mandates of law that help to create the power that they have over the police department. They can't simply blame the police department for these problems. They are part of the, the, the problem, and they need to be part of the solution uh, moving forward. So that's the advice I would give to everyone, just to, to, to look at the ACLU's lawsuit. Uh, contact the ACLU and ask what those provisions are uh, in the lawsuit that have been mandated by a judge and ask, you know, what progress has the, the, the police department made? And if they haven't made much progress, why? What is their excuse? Uh, and, and why is it that we continue to just sit back and allow them to make excuse after excuse instead of saying, no, no more excuses, do what you're told to do? Yeah, absolutely. I would say to stay on all of the elected officials that you um, have elected, whether it is in your area or not, they are now your representation. We as the council, we represent a particular district, but we also represent the city as a whole. So if you see elected officials um, on the city, county, state level that are not being vocal, that are not playing a role in this, um, call them out. Uh, make sure that you are pointing out what you expect of them as an elected official. I can tell you there are a few colleagues of mine that um, are going under the radar that are not really, um, you know, being vocal and, and not really um, playing a part in this um, because, you know, you need to really focus in and see where their allegiance are and how they are viewing this current movement. Um, and then if that is the case, then we need to remember and pay attention to that. But also, also being engaged, so don't let up. Now is not the time uh, to say, I did my part. Even if you are the one to, to watch the committee me meetings or to go back and view them and to point out to the rest of the community what happened, helping to spread the message um, and ensuring that the right information gets out there to the public, that is being a part of the movement. So I, I would ask that everyone continue to do your play your part um, be in your, your role, um, know what that is, and make sure that you are standing on uh, solid ground while you are in your role because we need all hands on deck um, during this movement. If we want to see 
the type of change that we are calling for and fighting for, marching for, uh, talking about every single day, we need to continue to keep the pressure on. And, and, and that is now through November so that we can make sure that, and that's not just at the presidential level. Let me just reiterate that. The state legislature is vital. So we need to make sure that we are voting down ballot. We need to make sure that we are engaged throughout this entire process. And we need to make sure that we are doing our part, having those conversations, talking to our networks, and, and making sure that we are getting right information out to the public. Um, just because you're not an elected official, it doesn't mean that you don't have a level of influence. So we are depending on each and every listener, each and every person that you have a, a, um, influence over to ensure that they are getting one, the right information, but two, that they are staying engaged. So Milwaukee, let's get this done. I have faith in our people uh, across the city that we can get this done and that we can see uh, change and we can foster hope that we want, um, but also have that radical social change happen in our lifetimes. The first action step I would say would be number one, to email the mayor of the city of Milwaukee, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, to request that he uh, appoint uh, those members to the Fire and Police Commission that need to be appointed. Uh, there should not be uh, two vacant seats and an expired seat on the Fire and Police Commission. Um, after 10 years of, of working hard to get that legislation passed, this is an immediate action step that should be able to happen and something, quite frankly, that the mayor should have done eons ago. So that's the first thing. Um, the second action step, I would say, um, would be to reach out to um, your state representative, because we have the ability to make changes that are uh, necessary for each municipality, and that's across the state. Wherever you live, you should reach out to your state representative and your state senator to find out where they stand on ensuring that equity and inclusion are a part of uh, the plan for this state. Thank you so much for listening to Bridge the City. This was one of the more difficult episodes I've ever produced because of the amount of information needed to research and understand these issues. So I hope that you leave this episode knowing a little bit more about what police reform might look like here in the city of Milwaukee and of course feeling inspired to get engaged and involved in your community. Um, I also want to take this time to shout out uh, an incredible organization here in the city of Milwaukee, Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. Uh, typically, we will ask people to support Bridge the City on Patreon, but instead, we hope that you just take some time now. It'll only take maybe one or two minutes uh, to go over to uh, Black Leaders Organizing for Communi Communities, their website, and give them a donation uh, if you're willing to do so because they're doing some amazing work around advocacy and getting uh, the community here in Milwaukee out to vote. Thank you again for listening to Bridge the City. My name is Ben Rangel, and as always, please let us know how you have helped Bridge the City. Bridge the City, whoa, whoa. Bridge the City, yeah. Bridge the City, yeah. Gotta bridge the city, the city. Bridge the City, whoa, whoa. Bridge the City, yeah. Bridge the City, yeah. Gotta bridge the city.